Good morning, everybody, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, July 3rd, 2016. The share ID for Friday, July 1st, is 8881. That's 8881. This morning, A Vision for You presents The Road to Recovery. Most of us have come to Overeaters Anonymous as a result of the frustration, demoralization, and despair we experienced in our disease of compulsive overeating. We come to OA looking for a way out, a solution which will free us from the pain, suffering, and the bondage of our affliction. The 12 steps, as outlined in the big book, represent a process of spiritual awakening, a road of recovery, an inward rearrangement that actually transforms us. As the forward to the first edition says, we have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. And the promises of this recovery are the freedom from the bondage of self and the freedom from the bondage of food. Joining us to share her story of transformation as a result of these 12 Steps, is Mary B., a recovered compulsive overeater from California. Mary is a loyal servant of Overeaters Anonymous, and it's with great appreciation that I welcome her here today. Welcome to you, Mary B. Thank you very much, Leah. Um, This is Mary B., very gratefully recovered food addict compulsive eater in Central California. I really appreciate being asked to share my story today. And when I tried to think of a title for Leah, the only other word that I would have added is the very long journey to recovery. I do have a very long story. When I'm asked to share like this, I um, I usually have three shares. And the first one is the one that goes through my head from the time I'm asked to the time I share. Then there's the one that actually comes out of my mouth, hopefully as a result of asking my higher power to give me the words. And then, of course, I won't be getting into my car and driving home this morning because I'm here, but I will get my car and driving home will be the third share and all of the things that I forgot to say. So my plan this morning um, is to qualify for a little while, tell you who I am, how I got here, and in what condition, and then how I work the steps. That's the plan. Let's see what happens. I... um, I will qualify that I have been a a compulsive eater all my life. I was a fat kid. I grew up fat, went through all of those experiences that so many of us had growing up as a fat kid, being serenaded. We don't want her. You can have her. She's too fat for me. Fatty, fatty, two by four. And on top of that, um, we moved frequently, and I attended five grade schools in six years. 
And every time I had to change schools, I had to make new friends and come in and try somehow to uh, make those friends love me so that my being fat wouldn't matter. And I learned to adapt to a new situation, new people, uh, constantly doing whatever this friend that I was trying to make was doing. If they were in the brownies, I joined the brownies. If they were in the um, campfire girls, I joined the campfire girls. I, I never stayed in one place long enough to get a uniform, but I would join and um, and do. And the one thing that I could always do was um, I was I was an excellent student, and I always had that to fall back on. My mother was a compulsive gambler. My father was a workaholic. And I was the oldest um, until I was 12 years old. I was the oldest of two girls, and then I was the oldest of three, and responsible um, for my younger sisters. My mother was absent from the home a lot. And there came my, um, my feelings of abandonment because we were abandoned. And I remember when my youngest sister and I would have been in an apartment building, and in the evening, all the kids would be... Now, this was um, this was way back in the day when mothers didn't work, and all of our friends would be called in to the home for dinner. Their fathers were home, their mothers were home, and my sister and I would be sitting out on the steps waiting for our mother to come home and hope that she would get home before our father did or there would be another fight. At one point um, in grade school, I came home from school one day and I told my mother that I had found my friend, one of my friends, in the ladies in the little girl's room crying. And she was crying because she told me her parents were going to get a divorce. And my mother said, you tell her to go to her parents and tell them that she doesn't want them to get a divorce because it's up to the children to keep the parents together. And in my home, my mother was constantly threatening to divorce my father. So, of course, it became up to me to keep my parents together. And I had to be a very good girl to do so and very responsible for everything. I can remember a telephone conversation my mother had with a cousin one day where she said she was taking my younger sister, who was my skinny sister. All she ate was sugar. I ate everything. My mother was telling uh, our cousin that she was taking my sister to a doctor for a potion to increase her appetite. But she never has to worry about Marianne because Marianne eats everything. I grew up um, in this responsible state, got married, um, had three, um, three sons. And six months after my youngest son was born, my eating was completely out of control. I had always been able to diet 
to um, go on a starvation diet. They were mostly diets that I made up um, or or I found a blitz diet, which was eating uh, cottage cheese and diet fruit three times a day and some kind of dried up cracker. I could always starve the weight off for any purpose. You know, if I was going on a trip or if we were going to a wedding or whatever, whatever the purpose was, I could starve it off. And I would go on a diet um, to lose weight, but also to lose enough weight so that I could get back to eating the way I ate before. I would go to a restaurant and order a nice, sensible dinner. And when the weight person would come up after dinner and say, are you ready for dessert? I would say no, but don't sell them all because I'll be back right after I lose this last five pounds or 10 pounds or whatever it was. And that was um, that was my, my way of keeping my weight within uh, what I would call my normal overweight, which was about 20, 25 pounds over where my uh, goal weight was. I lived in Mumu's. Um, I hid. Um, I was married. Uh, my first husband, I overheard him on the telephone one day talking to a friend. And he said, I don't know how Mary gets fat. She never eats anything. I guess I was pretty good at hiding what I was doing. I was just so full of shame. I hid. I lived in Mumu's. Uh, even though my weight really wasn't, um, wasn't that extreme yet. And... Um, but I was out of control. Once I started, I couldn't stop. I hid food. Um, Just this morning, I was remembering um, we had a bakery truck in Los Angeles called the Helms Bakery. And this was a truck that used to deliver my my, um, fix right to my door. And it was wonderful. That truck would come by the house and it would ring, they would ring a bell and you'd go out and they had a truck full of stuff. And I remember going out and finding some particular thing that I liked and I would buy one. And then the next time I would buy two. And one day I went out and I bought five and I looked at the, at the helmsman and I said, oh, my husband really loves these. Well, my husband never saw them, never never even knew they existed. And um, so I was a secret uh, eater. I um, never talked about my problem. I never shared it with anyone. No one ever knew what I was doing. They only knew that I was overweight and I was always trying to diet. And one day I went to visit my friend that uh, had been my best friend in junior high and high school, who was the beauty. She had a great figure, a million-dollar figure. Um, She had had her photos taken for modeling, and um, she was a beautiful girl. And She was a beauty, and I was the brains. And I went to visit her one day. She had had two, um, two children. I had just had my third. And for some reason, 
And I, I don't know to this day what made me tell her that I could not control my eating. I couldn't control it. And once I started, I couldn't stop. And she told me, uh, she had a, um, a shop that she owned um, crafts, a craft shop. And I think it must have been one of her customers who told her about this new um, program that started. And I should mention here that this was November, uh, actually it was the end of October of 1962. And she told me there was a new diet group or something that started called Overeaters Anonymous and where the meeting was. And so right after Halloween and on the first week of November, 1962, I walked into my first meeting of Overeaters Anonymous. And I was in heaven. I was so thrilled when I walked in that door and saw this room full of bright, happy, shiny faces. When I found that there was a name for what I was doing with food, compulsive overeating, when I discovered that these people, these are people who did what I did with food. And you know what really surprised me was that they got up in front of a room and they talked about it. They actually talked about it. I can remember the, the women who were leading that meeting. I could see them. I know I remember the name of one, but I do remember that one of the women had lost 80 pounds and the other had lost over 100 pounds. And I was just thrilled. I don't know what else I heard. I, um, hearing God, hearing the steps, these things were all Greek to me. I didn't understand any of it. And it didn't matter. I didn't care. Um, I met our founder, Roseanne, in that meeting. She had lost 65 pounds, and I was just very impressed. And she did become my first sponsor. Now, I grew up in a home where uh, I had no religious training, nothing. There was no formal um, uh, attendance at, uh, um, or training at all, nothing. And, but my parents were very proud of the fact that they never hit their children. But my mother would always say, God will punish you. God will punish you. And I remember looking up, up in the sky at the forms uh, of the clouds and seeing this old man with a long white beard. And he had this checklist with my name on top. And he was just checking it off. And I was waiting. I was always waiting for that punishment. I heard God in the room, but I kind of shoved it aside um, I, it didn't turn me off. I wanted to come back. I wanted to be with these people. And as I began to uh, learn more, to, um, to hear more, to hear the steps, to get to know the people, when it came to that higher power, 
I wanted it. I always wanted it. It was not something that I rejected, something that I said, oh, that's not for me. I know I hear so many people say they heard God and they walked out the door and they didn't come back until the food got them again. Well, uh, that's not what happened to me. I, um, my early experience in OA, you know, we didn't have a lot of experience, strength, and hope in Overeaters Anonymous at that time. I was only two years old. I called my sponsor, Roseanne, and we shared food. I wanted to know how she lost her weight, and she told me what she ate, and I ate what she ate, and I lost weight too. I had about 20, 25 pounds to lose at that time. I am now an 80-pound loser. I'm 80 pounds from my top weight. And uh, so that says a little bit about the progressiveness of this disease. I um, got abstinent. That's all I was interested in was the food plan. And um, I was on a diet with group support that we've heard about on these uh, lines so many times. And we went, uh, because we didn't have a lot of experience, strength, and hope, we turned to Alcoholics Anonymous for that um, inspiration. And there were people from AA who came to help us, Chuck C., Bobby Earl, even Clancy, who was known as one (laughs) one tough guy. And they did come. They came to our meetings to speak. They even um, led retreats a couple of times. And their help was was very valuable. There were others who laughed at us and actually said things like compulsive overeaters. Oh, God, that's the difference between syphilis and a cold. And they laughed. But, of course, as most of us know, much of our fellowship today is made up of people who have come from Alcoholics Anonymous. For me, AA was always an inspiration. I was inspired by the speakers. Um, When we started so many different kinds of meetings, I remember when they announced the first women's stag meeting in OA. And I laughed. I laughed. I thought that was funny because I hardly ever saw a man in a meeting. And, of course, that was changing over the years, too. But we had uh, step study meetings, and all we had were the AA books, the AA 12 and 12, and the Alcoholics Anonymous. And we did study them and went through them. And to me, it was always an inspiration. And I um, always felt I I needed to study them in order to stay abstinent. I knew that. But I never got how important it was to work those steps. And in the meantime... I was trying to find that higher power that these other people that were so inspiring and that I considered very spiritual seemed to experience 
And I did many, many things over the years, whatever they suggested, because I would ask. I had many different sponsors. I moved away from uh, the area where Roseanne was. I moved out to the valley, not too far, but far enough. And um, I went into relapse uh, three times, I think, in my first 10 years. Uh, One time I went out. I always had to find something wrong with the meetings. It was either something I didn't, I was hearing or I wasn't hearing. I was judging. It wasn't helping. It wasn't working. And so I would walk out the door. And I never, ever walked out the door saying, I'm going to go out there and put my weight back on. I never did it. I'm going to go out there and I'll show them I can do it. I have enough information. Uh, I understand the problem. All I have to do is find the right diet. And uh, I went out one time and uh, took the HCG shot, which was wonderful. Put you on a 500-calorie diet and you starved. I just starved every day. And you stay on that until for a certain length of time, and then you have to go off of it. And for me, it would only take a day or two because my disease was progressing. And each time I went out that door, I came back, crawling back through that door with more weight and, uh, and so depressed and so down. My last time out, I went to work for Weight Watchers. And I had the largest class that they ever had in the city of Los Angeles. And not because I was so wonderful, but I had been in OA by then for about eight years. And I was trying to bring the program into my Weight Watcher class. Teach it. And they loved it. They loved what they heard. It was all very positive, very uplifting. I used the questions. I couldn't bring the steps in. Oh, no, the steps were missing. And, of course, there was no participation. They were just listening to me. And you can't teach this program. You absolutely cannot teach it. And I was killing myself uh, at that time. And I wasn't the only one. We lectures, we'd get weighed in once a month. And we had to be within five pounds of our goal weight or we would lose our job. And so uh, as soon as that uh, our staff meeting was over, we would get together and go out to dinner. And that was the beginning of a two-week binge. And then for two weeks starving and taking diuretics, doing whatever I had to do to get my weight back down again. And uh, I was killing myself. I came back to Overeaters Anonymous uh, in 19, I don't know, this was 69 to 71, with the promise that I would never leave again. And I had moved from room to room uh, in our sister programs a number of times, but I have never left since then. Um, My journey has been... uh, (laughs) It's been a very long one. I, you know, I I asked myself what I could say because this part of my share would be to let 
the newer people know it doesn't have to take 50 years. I currently have 10 years of back-to-back abstinence and nine years of maintenance, actually below the lowest weight that I have ever been in all of these years. And it doesn't have to take that long. It was my inability to accept the fact that I am an alcoholic with food. I tried so many ways to be abstinent. I went through the meetings. I would ask um, people who were sin, how do you eat, how do you eat? And if they would say something I didn't like, I would say, well, that's not for me. You know, I'll, I, I would ask somebody else. And uh, and I did everything. I went to retreats. I went to. Uh, I'm in Los Angeles. I have meetings everywhere. My friends were all program people. They were all program people, and yet I could not get how important it was for me in the absolute beginning, the first half of step one, that I am powerless over food always have been, always will be, that will never change. I had to admit my alcoholic foods. I had to put them down forever. I cannot tell you today what brought me to the place where I finally did. Sometimes I think I I just got sick and tired of starting over. Um, my current sponsor, who I've known for over 40 years, was one of the most spiritual women I have ever known, who's been with me all this time, not as my sponsor, but just a friend off and on when she would move away and uh, we would not see or hear from each other for a long time, but she was always an inspiration to me, a very spiritual person. And still, I couldn't get it until I absolutely admitted that I am an alcoholic with food. I always have been. I always will be. That will never change. I came to my knees. The food brought me to my knees again. My top weight was 210 pounds. I know I started this abstinence at 169, so I didn't go all the way back. Um, Once I accepted that, the rest of it became so much easier. I came to A Vision for You in September of 2014, just when this group was starting on the title page. Uh, I got here... um, let me go back just a little bit, that I had gone from when I could no longer stay abstinent in OA, just trying to pick a food plan and changing it all the time because it, it just never satisfied me. I never felt I was on the right one and still looking for that easier, softer way. I had to leave and go to a structured a program where there was a structured, disciplined food plan. And I was able to stay abstinent. I'm still on that abstinence. 
Um, I'm in OA. I go to OA meetings. Um, A Vision for You is my home today. Um, I love this program. I have always loved the program. I have always wanted to shout it from the highest hill. Why doesn't everybody (laughs) do this? I can't imagine people come in and leave and never get back. But they do. I would lock the door. I would lock the door and never let anyone go out. But I know that we're going to have people who leave. Some never make it back. I just lost one of my dearest friends who went away for years and finally came back, but just a little too late. So I am so glad that whatever I went through through the years, up and down, in and out, off and on, that my higher power always picked me up by the scruff of the neck and planted me where I needed to be. So, again, I'm hoping that some of my story will help those who are struggling and who are trying to start to know that you don't have to go through all those years of suffering. That's why we share our stories. That's why we talk about what it used to be like. That's why we tell you where we came from so that you'll know that even though I may be 130 pounds today and my top weight was 210, I went through all of those stages, all of those, all that pain, so that hopefully somebody out there won't have to. I got to a point where um, I was suicidal. I considered my binges suicidal binges. Um, There was one point where I was working in Westwood Village, which was not far from UCLA. And UCLA has a neuropsychiatric clinic. And I had called the clinic and told them I was depressed and I wanted to come in and talk to somebody. And they told me I was going to meetings, but I didn't have a sponsor and I wasn't working the program. I told them, um, they told me it would be that I would have to wait three weeks for an appointment. And instead of getting angry or upset with the person I was speaking to, I laughed. I laughed. I think I could see myself completely decomposed in three weeks. And I said, well, I guess I better go back to the program. And I did. I went back to work the program, got a sponsor. And three weeks later, I got a phone call. We have an appointment for you. And I told them to forget it. I didn't need it. I I guess one of the most awful nights that I remember in my binging was the night that I had eaten so much, I thought my stomach was going to burst. And I had the telephone in my hand ready to call 911. But I wouldn't do it because I would have been too humiliated to tell them how I got in that condition. So I'm a very low bottom compulsive eater. And the fact that I am here today, 80 pounds from my top weight. Yesterday, I celebrated my 79th birthday. 
I am at a place where I expected I would no longer care. When I get older, I won't care anymore. I'll just be able to eat anything and I'll get fat. It won't make any difference. I won't care. And I care today more than I ever have. Then they go back to September of 2014 and how I got here. One of my sponsees called me and said, Mary, have you ever heard of A Vision for You? And I, I have been on PhoneBridge since PhoneBridge started way back in the 90s. And I said no. And she gave me the phone number and I called. And I heard something on this line that I have not heard for ages. I can't remember when at our meetings. Probably did in the AA meetings years ago. I heard something very different and very special. And I am so grateful to be here. I would like to go through now and talk about how I work the steps and what these steps mean to me with this last half hour. Step one, how many times have I taken step one? Oh my gosh. I am powerless. The food was the great convincer. It always took me to my knees faster than anything else could. I was a down and dirty compulsive eater. It was a very progressive, it is a very progressive disease. I never put weight back on without going higher until I reached that. Uh, that weight I was never going to, I was never going to be 200 pounds. Um, I just, I, I got on the scale at 180, 190, and I would see that mark, that 200. I'm never going to go there. not going to go there. That was so scary for me. <laughs> and I got on the scale. It was sometime in the mid-80s. I don't remember exactly when, but I remember uh, I was divorced and in a relationship, and I remember who I was in a relationship with, and I remember about when that was, so it was in the mid-80s. And thank you, God, I've never had to go back there. One of the things that keeps me from taking that first bite is a fear. You know, I've, I've heard people say, I, may, I know I have another binge, but I don't know if I have another recovery. My higher power is always with me. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about the progress of my spiritual, my spiritual progress in this program. But I know that my higher power is always with me. I know that no matter what, I will always have another recovery. I believe that. But I, what I don't know is from the moment I take that first bite, how long it will take me after cutting my higher power off because that's exactly what the food does. It cuts me off. It's like pulling that plug right out of the wall. I can't turn that light on. It won't go on. It's not connected. And the food disconnects me. And I have to put that plug back in again. And I don't know when I will. 
or if it would be a bite or a meal or a day, a week, a month, a year, years, I don't believe that if I ever put my weight back on, I would stop at 210. That thought helps a great deal to keep me from picking up my alcoholic foods because I am an alcoholic with food. Recently, um, well, I'd like to talk for a moment about willingness because it certainly takes a heap of willingness to work this program. But willingness is a word that has given me some trouble over the years. And I remember when I was in relapse and I was going around asking people, you know, I had one friend particularly who I knew ate the way I did. She was a down and dirty, dirty binger. She had lost a lot of weight. She put it all back on and lost it again. And I went up to her and I said, what made the difference for you between being in that state of binging and being abstinent? And she said, I just kept praying for the willingness. And I thought, okay, you know, that's easy. I've done that. I've heard that a lot. I can pray for the willingness. Got in my car, started driving, and I thought, okay, just pray for the willingness, pray for the willingness. And I heard this voice that said, Mary, if you wait until you're willing, you will be 250 pounds. And I realized that I had to put the food down right then. God never put the food in my mouth. He was not going to take it out. This was what I had to do. I had to go to the market, buy the food for my abstinent day, get my head on the pillow that night, abstinent, and say, thank you, God, for this day. And to wake up in the morning and say, thank you, God, for the opportunity to be abstinent again today and go through the discomfort and the pain and whatever. You know, somebody once said to me, if you want to know why you eat, stop. Absolutely, you're going to be uncomfortable. And I say that um, a lot to people who call me who are in the throes of a relapse and cannot get abstinent. Just get your head on the pillow tonight abstinent. I don't care if you go to bed at four o'clock in the afternoon. Just don't pick up today. And let's see what we can do for tomorrow. Also, I I found I had to perform radical surgery on my relapse. Radical surgery. I had to stop talking about it. I had to stop calling myself a relapser a chronic relapser. I am, I can't, I won't, I don't, I didn't. That all had to stop. One day of abstinence, and I am an abstinent compulsive eater. I am abstinent. And it helped me so much with the help of my sponsor to put aside the binge and get abstinent. There's plenty of time to figure out why it happened, how it happened, and what we're going to do about it. There's something that my 
sponsor said to me recently, and by the way, that woman who was that wonderful spiritual inspiration to me for so many years is my sponsor today. And we, we joke about sponsoring one another. For one week, I call her, and for the next week, she calls me. And we, um, we share our food. I commit my food five days a week, and I do my 10 steps with her. But I'm so grateful that she's still in my life. And something she said to me this week that choked me up, and it was, food gave me wings to fly, then it took away the sky. And I don't know why that hit me in such a a strong way. It was like I felt everything from all of those years of binging. And then I found out that it is from a story in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, the uh, story about the pilot. And there are some wonderful stories in the back of the book that I haven't gotten to because I've been so busy on, um, on this recovery program called The Vision for You. Step two, came to believe. Came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Again, I wanted it. I wanted to believe. I wanted to experience what these people had. And I, I took a lot of their um, suggestions, although in the beginning and for a long time, I wanted to get it by osmosis. I wanted to hear them speak and talk about God and that I would just suddenly get it. I had to work for it, and it didn't happen overnight. But I thank God that I wanted it, that I didn't reject it, that I was willing to read the books, that I was willing to go to the courses, that I was willing to join a church, that I was willing to go wherever I had to go and do what I had to do to try to find this higher power. And I began, it began with my changing my concept of God to from that punishing God to a loving God. That wasn't too hard. I did that. But what was a little more difficult for me was learning to trust because I had to control. I had to control everything. Remember, I'm the one who had to keep the family together. I'm the one who had to take care of the kids. I'm the one who had to be the adult. And so for me to trust and to let go of everything took quite a long time. And all I can say is I kept trying. I kept trying. Step three, made a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God as we understood him. I was coming to understand a God that I wanted to turn my will and my life over to. But I had to talk to myself at times. I started talking to myself and saying, I'm turning my will and my life over to the care of God. What does that leave me? What does that leave me to manage? Does that mean that I can manage my children? 
No. Does that mean I can manage my job? No. Does that mean I can manage my husband when I finally I was divorced and single for quite a few years, but remarried? Can I manage my husband? No. There's no to everything. It leaves me nothing. And I learned many different ways to pray and to turn things over to God. And one of my favorite things that I I learned along the way was um, when my youngest son was applying for college and he had been accepted at the universities that he applied to. He had a full scholarship to UCLA and, but he wanted to go to Stanford and he was, he wanted to go to Stanford. I got on the phone. I called the sponsor and I said, my son who has worked so hard and deserves it. And he's, he wants to go to Stanford and I can't see any possible way that we can send him. His father and I were divorced. I didn't know how much his father was willing to help. She told me to put my son in one hand, the school in the other, lay down on the bed on my back, toss the buck to God, and stay there until I felt he caught them. I did that. I did it, just acting as if. And then I got up and I just got busy, you know, pray and do the dishes, pray and make the bed. And my son came walking in the door a few days later and says, Mom, I'm going to Stanford. Got on the phone, called my my friend. I don't think she was my sponsor, but I called my friend. They said, my son's going to Stanford. And she said, how did that happen? I said, I don't know. And to this day, I can tell you, I don't know. I don't know. But when something comes up for me today, If I have a problem with a person, I take it through, of course, the 10th step. I talk to someone, and then I lay on my back on the bed, and I put that person in my hand, and I toss them up to God. And I picture these big furry arms grabbing that person and hanging on to them. And I let go. And whenever that person comes to my mind, I have to remember, oh, yeah, I gave that one to God. God, you've got him. You've got him now. I don't have to get involved. I can stay out of it because you've got him. Step three. You know, something else I've heard uh, in the program over the years, I came, I came to, I came to believe. And that's where it usually stops. And I had to add one more. I came to know. And I really feel that today. I feel that I know this higher power within. I had to bring him down out of that sky and bring him within. My sponsor has a bumper sticker on her car that says, go within. And I know that I shared this once on this line and somebody came on and said, God isn't just within me, God is everywhere. And it reminded me of that wonderful word, namaste. The God in me sees the God in you. 
And the only way I can see the God in you is when I see the God in me. Step four, made of searching and fearless. Moral inventory. Oh, my God, that took me out of the room so many times. I didn't want to do that. That was great for the alcoholic, but I didn't have to do that. Um, I I was just a, a compulsive eater. That didn't apply to me until I finally, the food again brought me to my knees and brought me to the place where I had to try to work all the steps. And I have taken many fourth steps. And the way I see them today, I I like pictures and analogies. I love those things. And I kind of picture a bottle of pills, let's say a bottle of aspirin, a brand new one. And it's full of these little pills. And those pills are all labeled with my character defects. And on top of that new bottle is cotton. That cotton is the food that I had to stuff on top of those defects to keep them inside because I was so afraid to let them out. If you ever asked me how I felt before a program, I couldn't even answer you. I couldn't come up with an answer because I couldn't identify a feeling. Now I want to fill up with a higher power. That's what I want. That's what I'm working for. But I've got to get those defects out of the way. All the good stuff. There's just no room in there. There's no room for both of them. So I have to get those defects out of the way. And when they get painful enough, when the food is gone, they get painful enough. And I want to get them down on paper. So with a number of tries, and I worked a fourth step in many different ways. My first one was all about them and what they did to me. It was completely about them. I got a little better as time went on. I did it many different ways. I did it with questions. Um, I went through the steps with a lot of, um, oh, the, the first one was APOR, Applied Principles of Addictive Recovery. And then there was AWOL. I did two of those, A Way of Life, going through the steps with the 12 and 12 and the big book. And I got better. I got better every time and wrote that inventory and got my character defects out on paper. But that wasn't enough because, um, uh, you know, I I did one here in um, A Vision for You also. And after all these years and making um, my amends and cleaning up the past, my recent inventory was to clean up the wreckage of my present. And there was plenty. It was mostly about self-seeking, self-selfish, self-obsession, self that still got in the way of my, uh, of my continued spiritual progress because I have not arrived. I will say all the time, please be patient with me. God is not finished with me yet. One of my biggest character defects was dishonesty because I had to look good. I had to look good at all costs. And step five is what uh, helped me to become honest, to talk to somebody, to tell somebody exactly the nature 
of my wrongs. And they helped me because there were things that I would have um, blamed myself for that weren't my fault. I said I put down this steel mallet that I beat myself with, and I picked up a rubber mallet. I was easier on myself when I came into program, but still very, very hard on myself. And I had to admit to God, to myself, and another human being the exact nature of my wrongs. And I was merely talking to my higher power through another person. And when I hear a fifth step, I remind the person that I am only the ears to God. I am not here to fix somebody. I'm not here to judge them. Uh, I'm not here to compare. I I love to uh, identify. I love to identify. And I know that it made me feel so much better when uh, the person I was giving my inventory to shared some of their experiences with the same character defects. It's so honest to open up. It's, it's so uh, freeing to open up to another person and be totally accepted. And with my inventory, there were um, quite a few. Um, I, got the, I got the tough stuff out early, and I'm very grateful for that. In step six, I made a list. Um, Where am I? Step six, I was entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. And of course, they were listed in my fourth step. And it says that I became entirely ready to have God remove these defects of character. It doesn't say that I become ready or become willing, that I have to work on it. You see, when I went through that incident with willingness to become abstinent that day, I realized that I can't even judge my degree of willingness. God does that. God is in my willingness. God is in my fear. God is in my honesty. Um, I can't I can't judge my willingness. This says that I am entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. May not do it all right away. I know that these defects, these defects still come up. I had a bit of a row with my husband yesterday, and I opened my mouth, and I forgot one of the greatest lessons that I have learned in this program, and that God has taught me to shut my mouth but I opened it yesterday and I had an amends to make, an immediate amends. So getting ready, you know, I can get ready to go on a trip. Maybe I'm going to fly to um, the Caribbean. There's somebody on the line here who's in the Caribbean. Maybe I'm going to fly down visit her. Well, I can pack and get ready to go. I'm ready, completely dressed, everything set. But that plane doesn't take off for another four hours. Well, I can't go until I go through the steps to either get my car, call a cab, do whatever I have to do to get from here to there. And that the program works that way too. I'm ready, God. 
here we go. We get to do some more. And we come to step seven, which says, I humbly asked him to remove my shortcomings. And humility. Humility to me means, and I think Irene says it so well, and she says it every time she introduces herself, to give credit where credit is due. I am so grateful for where I am today, spiritually, physically, and I love being thin. I got to tell you, you know, some people have said, oh, it's not about the weight. It's not about the food. It's not about the weight. Well, it's not about the food, folks, as long as I'm abstinent. Because if I'm not abstinent, it's all about the food. And it's not about the weight as long as I'm near or at my goal weight. And that's the way it is for me, and that's the truth. But I give credit for everything I have today to my higher power. Celebrating my birthday yesterday and realizing that if I had continued to go the way I was going, before I finally gave up. So that's before program and even in program. I would not be alive today. I believe that God removes defects of character from all of us. Not to replace it with anything, but to free what is already there. Because God, don't make no junk. And I'm sorry, all you school teachers out there, that is just the saying, another one that I've heard so many times. God don't make no junk, and I'm just one of his kids. And one of the most important things I learned by doing step four through nine was realizing that I'm not such a big deal. Step eight made a list. And that list of all persons we had harmed and became willing, became willing. Now there's became willing. So there's something I can work on, becoming willing to make amends to them all. Some were tougher than others. My list was there. And to um, just share how I did a couple of them, uh, the really tough ones, one was a financial amend because I did a lot of shoplifting in my teens. And I did a lot of shopping, shoplifting at some stores that were out of business by the time I took a really serious inventory. But there was one that wasn't, and that was J.C. Penney's in Culver City. And with the guidance of my sponsor, I wrote a check. I had no idea what I owed them, no idea, no way for me to know. So all I could do was write a check for what I could afford at that time. I had to go see the manager and sit in his office, tell him what I had done, and hand him the check. And yes, I thought he could call the police. I don't know. You know, uh, my imagination ran away with me. But he didn't. He didn't want to take the check because he said something about not having a place to uh, deposit it, but I told him I had to leave it. I didn't care what he did with it and give it to charity or whatever. But I walked out without that check and 
having made that amends. And I, I don't remember whether it ever cleared my account or not. The other tough amend was to my ex-husband. Now, my ex-husband was physically and verbally abusive. And he was on my list because I came to realize in my inventories that I had attracted this particular person to me because of something in my character. When he called me a name, I agreed with him. When he hit me, I felt I deserved it. Now, he might have been that higher power I'd been waiting to punish me. I don't know. I I can't get into anything that deep. But I knew that I had a part in it. And I wanted to make amends, but I couldn't do it. He was the one who blah, blah, blah. So I kept putting it off and putting it off. And one day, my ex-husband called me and said he wanted to take me to lunch. And because we have three sons, we, I had always kept a, a good relationship with him after our divorce. Um, he made amends to me. He made amends to me. He wasn't in a program. I don't even know what brought it on. But he did and opened the door for me to also make amends to him. I just left it up to God and God took care of it. Okay, um, I'm running out of time and I'm going to go through the rest of these steps. So I worked step eight and nine, the the, um, companies that were closed that I owed a financial uh, amends to. I was able to write checks to to charities and uh, and I made amends that way. And uh, the regular, usual, you know, mom and dad and... uh, and my kids, and uh, I got it done. I got it done. Step 10, continue to take personal inventory. And when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. There were times when I used page 86 and 87 and just read them every single day. They were my meditation, my morning meditation. But I never really worked these steps. Step 11, yes, meditation for years, for years. But to work them in continuing to take inventory, to watch for these defects coming up, to take care of them right away, um, no. I wasn't working it that way until I came into a vision for you. And today when something will come up, um, my husband now is 91 and he's losing his vision. And he needs more help and uh, sometimes I get really annoyed. I promised myself I wouldn't. I would be patient because he can't help it. Something he can't help. And if it were me, he would be right there. And I know that. And, um, but I do, I lose it sometimes. And I have to write it out. But when I talk to my sponsor in the morning, I clear up anything that had happened the day before. Unless it's something that I need to clear up right now. And if I can't reach her, I will call someone else. So I uh, keep myself pretty clear with step 10, 
and 11. And step 11, I must connect first thing every morning uh, and thank God. My prayers are very simple. In fact, my program today has become very simple. I merely say, thank you, God. I don't ask for anything. I turn God into Santa Claus for a while. But today, I don't ask for anything because I have everything I need. And I just say thank you. Even if I think I need something I don't have, I still thank God. I thank God. And if I'm supposed to have it, I will. If I'm not, I will Life really has become that simple. So I thank God. I thank God for my life. And step 12, working with others. And this is what it's all about because all through the book, when you read the big book, there's no place in there that says, if you do this, this, and this, you will be thin. But it says over and over again, if you do these things, you will be of use to God and your fellows. So everything I've done, everything I've been through, every experience has made me more useful to my higher power. It doesn't always have to be sponsoring, even though I love to sponsor and I always work with people. But it doesn't have to be. There are so many ways to carry the message here. And I have to put in a word for service. I kind of follow a rule that an AA friend shared with me. He said, he tells his sponsees, when the secretary says, we need, you raise your hand before you even know what it is they're asking for. There are so many opportunities to be of service. When I hear someone say, I would sponsor, but I don't really know how. Well, somebody sponsors you. All you have to do is do it the same way. And that's what I do. There's a lot of people on this line who do so many things. I don't think I'll ever be able to quote the book chapter and verse to pick a page and a paragraph. These words are here and those are there. I I just might not ever be able to do that. I do take people through the book exactly the way my sponsor did with me. And I get more every time. So I know I've gone over my time already and I've got to close. It's never a problem. The timer is always going off on me. And I will close now and uh, thank Leah for asking me to do this. I'll tell you, I am really grateful that it's over. but. I think we'll open it up now for questions. Leah, do you take it here? Thank you so much, Mary, for sharing your experience, strength, and hope with us and your transformation as a result of trudging this road of recovery. Thank you for your touching story this morning, really. Thank you very much. It was beautiful. Uh, Mary B.'s contact information will be offered at the conclusion of this recording, so stay tuned for that. Yes, we will now open the line for questions for Mary, and you can pose a question by pressing star 1 to unmute and identify yourself, please. Mary Lee, I hear you, but you are extremely faint. 
perhaps you can adjust your phone or your mic. Anyone else want to ask a question of Mary B. this morning? Star 1 to unmute. Carolyn S.H. Carolyn S.H. Anyone else? All right, Melinda H. Melinda. Melinda H. Okay. All right, well, let's get started with Carolyn S. H., please. Hi, good morning, Leah. Can I be heard? Sure can. Hi, good morning, Carolyn S. H., calling in from Massachusetts. Mary, thank you so much. It was so lovely to hear your story. Um, and uh, the question that popped into my head is you had said that going from the concept of a punishing God to a more kind and loving God um, you found that easy Um, and I would love to hear more that's one thing that uh, is a little stickler for me in my recovery has been and actually still is I find the 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 punishing God um, creeping in and when I don't even realize it. So I just, if there's anything else for you to offer about why that was easy, how it was easy, how you did it, um, I'd love to hear. Thank you for the question, Carolyn. Uh, Yes, Uh, having that punishing God. Again, I was blessed with wanting it. I wanted that higher power that I heard other people in the rooms talking about. There was one woman who would sit and talk to me for the longest time about God. And with this big smile on her face, she was a good friend. And I moved away from the area where she was. And and then I left away for a while. And I was going to one of the sister programs for a while, for quite a long time. And uh, I had been away on an RV trip about, 10 years ago with my husband, came back to my book club, which was made up of all people from Overeaters Anonymous that I had known in those early years. And there was this new woman, and they introduced her. And yeah, hi, you know. And she was talking to somebody, somebody else. She wasn't even talking to me, but I heard her voice. And I thought, oh my God, that's Rochelle. That's her. That's the woman who sat and talked to me for hours, but I hadn't seen her for 25 years. I I listened. I listened to these people, and I wanted what they had. And I did so many things that, you know, may have seemed like a waste of time at the time. I read books. I, I, um, I joined a church, and growing up in a Jewish home and joining a church um, was not easy, but I found one that taught, I believe, some, um, well, anyway, was very close to what we learn in these rooms. And uh, and I did everything there. I was in a, a prayer therapy group for a while. And, um, you know, it, it's studying. When I went to college, I, I took a course called History of World Religion. I I just did, you know, I just did whatever they told me to do. And 
until it happened. I didn't make it happen. It didn't happen. Like today, I was afraid, and tomorrow, uh, decided God was love. But that wasn't too too difficult for me to see that there was a loving God, a loving God, and I had to learn to trust him. So I hope that answers your question. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Thanks, Mary. Thank you very much. Melinda H., your turn. Good morning. Hi, everyone. What I would like to say is I don't really have a question, but what I would like to say, and I mean this with every fiber of my being, I'm so sincere here. I love a vision for you, and I listen pretty much every day, and if I can't, I listen to the recording. And I'm so grateful, and I want to thank all of you for your service and your shares. Um, I'm teetering, and I have been for some time, and you all help and keep me from falling off and going down. Um, And God is just working through each and every one of you. And thank you for your service, and I hope you have a a safe and happy fourth. I'll pass. Thank you, Melinda H. Who else? I didn't catch your name. Sharon. Leah, did you forget Mary Lee? Sharon. Mary Lee, hi. Okay. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, I can hear you loud and clear. So let's go ahead with Mary Lee, and then we'll have Sharon. Is there anyone else? Yes, Linda R. Linda R. Gladys. And Gladys. And Jody E. And Jody E. Okay. Mary Lee, go ahead. Thank you. Good morning. This is Mary Lee R., formerly from Central Coast, now in <laughs> Oregon. And Mary B., I, before I ask my question, I want to give you an accolade. Um, I heard your story in November in San Luis Obispo, and <laughs> there is a softening that has happened in you that um, I'm just so grateful to to be on this path with you. My question goes to your um, step nine with your ex-husband. I had a very, very similar ex-husband, and um, I didn't. I, I wanted to know what you ended up saying to him because I, I, I just needed to hear. I need to hear that. No, Thank you. sure, Mary Lee, and I miss you, honey. Um, yeah, that that's easy because once he <laughs> made amends to me and, uh, you know, I still don't know why. Maybe he was in therapy. I never did ask him. I didn't even question it. I was so surprised. It was easy to say, you know, I, I triggered something in him because he picked me for the same reason. I don't know that he ever abused another woman in his life. I've heard stories that he was kind of mean, you know, but he always was mean. I knew he was mean before I married him, but I was going to fix it. So once he once he made amends to me, I mean, I was so shocked. And I, he even took my mother uh, separately. He took my mother out to lunch to make amends to her. 
But while he made amends to me, I just looked at him and I said, I know I had a part in this. You know, I'm not innocent. I'm in this too. I attracted something to you. I triggered something. Uh, intentionally or not intentionally, he he never got up in the morning and said, today I'm going to see how I can hurt Mary. And I know that. He's not a bad man. I talk to my children. I tell them that we were both good people who were not good together. And it's just true. I outgrew that. It took me 10 years. I was married for 16 years, so I stayed in that marriage another six years after I knew that I had to get out because I did not deserve that kind of treatment. So um, it was just, it it was easy once he opened up, and, and I believe I would have done it eventually because it kept coming up. It kept coming up in in uh, subsequent inventories. It wouldn't leave me alone, and it's not going to leave you alone until you do uh, face it. So um, he made it easy, but to make amends for my part, to just let him know that it it wasn't his his fault, all his fault. Uh, we were both at fault. Spot on, Mary. Thank you. The triggering part is the part that I needed to hear. Thank you so much. God bless. Sure. Yeah. Thank you, Mary Lee and Sharon. It's your turn if you could please include the first letter of your last name as well. Okay. This is Sharon W. in Atlanta. I'm a compulsive overeater, night binger, and... um, Thank you so much for that message, Mary. And um, my question to you is, what are or what were some of your biggest fears? Losing control was my biggest fear. And I was out of control with the food. Mm -hmm. And I was always afraid. Whenever I started eating, I always had a plan. I had Mary's plan. I'm going to do this, but as soon as I'm done, I'm going to uh, get a new sponsor. I'm going to go back to program. I'm going to go to Weight Watchers. I'm going to go on the Atkins diet. I'm going to do the play. I'm going to, going to, going to, going <laughs> to. <laughs> I always had a plan. Um but fear, oh yeah, well, and fear winds its way through everything. I was a egomaniac with an inferiority complex mm-hmm. because I had to appear together, and I had a, a smile planted on my face. My fear was being found out. I just never wanted to be found out, and. Um, so my whole life was one of hiding and lying. When I divorced my husband, so many people were shocked because we looked to the outside world like the all-American family. We belonged to the Y. My husband was involved with the boys, you know, in the YMCA. And we were square dancers and we went camping and 
we just looked to the outside world, like the all-American family. It took me, it helped me a lot with my envy of other people's homes and home life because I realized you never know what's going on behind someone else's closed doors. So, um, yeah, those were my were my biggies. Thank you. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Sharon W. Linda R. Good morning. Linda R. Recovered in um, North Carolina, and thank you so much for your service today. Um, I really, Mary, I really um, identified and related to most of your story. I feel that, you know, my childhood and yours were, I mean, the whole life is just very parallel. Um, you mentioned that your mother was a gambler and that, you know, I related to that. My mother was a gambler and that your father was a workaholic and I had the same exact family. And I wanted to know, um, as far as the gambling issue, I had a lot of, I had and still do have resentment about my mother's gambling and my my family, you know, it spiraled in my family, in the downline of my family. And I just wanted to know, as far as gambling, has it affected your life at all? And if it has, how have you made amends? But, you know, with my mother, I had a lot of trouble, you know, with the 8th and ninth finding venues to make amends to her, and I'm doing living amends today with that. So could you please expand more on the gambling uh, issue that you grew up with, please, related to our RGB? Thank you. Oh, certainly, Linda, and thank you for the question. Yes, um, I I tried a lot of things. I wanted to to stop my mother, you know, and there was even one time when I, as an adult, as a child, I couldn't do anything. I just remember coming home from school and um, there was nobody home. And um, when I would come home from school, by the way, when my mother would lose all her money and have to stay home for a while, she would try to make up to us by cooking and baking all of our favorite foods. And so I would come home from school and open the door and smell the baking in the kitchen and know mom was home. And uh, so as a child, I couldn't, I couldn't do anything. I just, um, I just worried all the time that uh, she and my father would fight. And, of course, <clears throat> it's a disease just like ours and progressive. So I didn't even get the worst of it. My youngest sister got the worst of it. She weighs 350 pounds today, and um, I I can't get into her. But as an adult, I I did uh, what I tried to uh, stop her. I went to the to the poker parlor and um, stood there and looked at her, and I thought this room is full of zombies, and my mother is one of them. And I I cried. Oh, drama queen here. You know, and I'm standing there crying, thinking for sure she's going to get up and walk out with me. No, <laughs> she stayed. And um, and then, of course, we took her to Gamblers Anonymous. We tried to get her into the program, and she loved it and everything, but she didn't keep going. So I had to accept her. I had to accept her exactly as she was. Uh, later in her life, and she lived to 90 somehow. As a woman who, when she was gambling, she drank coffee and smoked cigarettes and would stay there 24 hours. Those poker parlors were open 24 hours. 
and she still made it to 90. Um, I have not ever learned to play poker. I play Mexican train, which is Domino's game, and I love it. I don't play cards. I have played, I guess, uh, card games. I used to play canasta. But I, I just don't. I go to uh, Las Vegas or something, and I it scares me, the feeling I get when I'm <laughs> playing those stupid um, machines. So I stay far away from it. And um, yes, I made amends to my mother because I found it very difficult to accept her and her disease. When I have one, I just turn to food instead of gambling. Could have been alcohol. I drank alcoholically, and the only reason I've never raised my hand as an alcoholic was because when I got scared, when I would drink enough to frighten me, I would stop. I couldn't stop eating. So, and yes, for my mother, it was um, living immense, as it was with everybody. Everybody on my list has been doing living amends. Um, even when it comes to stealing, um, I can't rationalize anything. That little item left in the market basket that didn't get run through the checkout that I used to toss in the car and say, oh, they probably overcharged me at some time or another, so they owe me. The things I took from the office because they weren't paying me enough anyway for what I do here. <laughs> I can't do those things anymore. I have to take that little item back into the store and uh, pay for it. And, um, you know, of course, making living amends to my children who will always tell me that I don't have any amends to make to them. And um, my husband will tell me, I don't have, you don't have to say you're sorry to me. I know, I know, I, you know, what I did and I'm sorry and you don't have to say you're sorry. And I say, yes, I do. I do. And he understands that. And um, so that's um, that's about it, I think. I hope that answers your question, Linda. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Linda R. Gladys, your turn. Oh, hi, this is Gladys. Uh, thank you, uh, Mary, for your story. You know, I was just all I could think about is that line in the color purple when I... You know, when I heard it, I was like, oh, I know there's a guy. <laughs> but um, I got so much out of it. And you shared a little bit about uh, I think Roseanne sponsoring you and then your sponsor that you have now. You all kind of work together. Oh, no, it was the uh, the spiritual sponsor, actually. Um, the one who had been in my life for 40 years, who is my sponsor today. And, of course, it's not Roseanne. Roseanne is passed. Right, yeah, I was talking about Okay. Yes. No, Roseanne was my sponsor just for about my first three months in program, I think. And then, you know, I mean, this woman, um, I I think we all appreciate what she did in the beginning. She had little children like I did. I, I don't know that 
I mean, I don't know um, if I could have turned my house over. She had a wonderful husband who supported her with this. I mean, her house, her table's full of literature and, and communications coming in and people answering. And um, I mean, she did a lot, a lot. And I had little children, and hers were a little bit older than mine, but not much. And and uh, she sacrificed a lot in the beginning uh, to get this started. And so as she got her sponsees going, she started turning them over to uh, her sponsees. And um, and we had to spread out like that. But I went to a lot of meetings with her and uh, and always kept in touch with her until the end. And then I was very sorry that I hadn't gone back to uh, see her again. But, yeah. So I didn't get a chance to ask my question, but what oh. my uh, my question is, I almost forgot now. But anyway, my question is that my first sponsor in OA, I had it for like five years, and I just like been listening to the Vision for You meetings, and it's been kind of difficult to find a sponsor. And I was just wondering, uh, do you have any suggestions on that? Would it be like okay to use a local sponsor that I'm in Chicago that do do the big book, or just uh, what should I be looking for? What? I, Gladys, thank you for that question. And uh, I like to be accountable. Being accountable is very important to me, which means, you know, I'm blessed. I mean, even up here, I don't have, I've moved to Central California from Southern California. In Southern California, in my home, I had two meetings a week I could walk to. And yes, I always had a sponsor in my face-to-face meetings. Right now, I don't. I really don't. Um, my sponsor lives in, in Arizona. and um, But she knows me. She knows all about me. She knows my husband. She knows my children. She knows my grandchildren and my great-grandson. And I don't have to go through... You know, that's why I take my 10 steps with her because I don't have to go through a background story in order to tell her what's going on. She knows right away. And um, so, sure, I definitely think it's good to have a local sponsor. But my vision sponsor was on the phone. I met her in Virginia Beach, which was wonderful. But yeah, I mean, uh, definitely I, I can work with somebody on the phone, um, but I do need someone to be accountable to, and that's why I call. I still commit my food every day. I don't commit as uh, specific as I used to. My 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 sponsor and I both, we've been abstinent a long time. She's been abstinent a lot longer than I have, but, um, you know, back to back, but... Um, we know our food, and we can commit generic. And uh, but any anything, uh, any changes, anything I'm thinking of doing, I have to run by her. I have to run it by her, and she with me, with all the years. You know, I know I'm recovered, but not cured. 
from this disease. I'm free of any craving or um, obsession with the food. I'm free of that. I thank God. Um, but I, yes, I, I need someone to be accountable. And if you can find a sponsor locally, great. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you, Gladys. And our final question this morning comes from Jody E. Thank you, Leah. Good morning, everyone. This is Jody E., a grateful, recovered, compulsive overeater in California. Thank you so much, Mary. What an amazing, beautiful story you shared with us. My question is about um, what you said about needing to change from making negative statements about yourself and your compulsive eating to more positive statements. Mm-hmm. Um, if you could just say a little bit more about that. Oh, well, I was... Uh, hi, uh, Jody. <laughs> hi, Jody, and thank you so much for the question. It's good to yeah. hear from you, hon. Yeah, it's that uh, relapse thing that... You know, I I remind people that there are so many more of us than there are of them. And, you know, I mean, the people who come in and get abstinent from day one and stay abstinent for their whole... I'd love to get on and say, I'm Mary B. and I've been abstinent for 53 years. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Yeah. Uh, The only thing my time and program means is that... uh, you know, it, my memory is fading, but it makes me a pretty good historian uh, for Overeaters Anonymous and what we went through in those early years and the oldest person in the room, period, end of story, that's it. But um, my experience with relapse means that I can reach out and help someone else who is trying to come out of relapse. And I notice that constant review of of uh, the negatives, uh, what they did and how much weight they gained and how awful the, the eating was and um, how hard it is. It's hard. Sure, it's hard. If it wasn't hard to get abstinent after blowing it, we would just stay abstinent. Um of course it's hard. Those feelings are going to come up. Those feelings that I buried again. Those feelings that I tried to bury again with the food, which never really worked. Um, and so I found I had to get, get out of it as quickly as possible. Because somebody came up to me at a meeting one day and said, somebody wanted, wants me to help with Mary, but I only have a day of abstinence. It was somebody else in the meeting. And I said, well, you know what? If that person is in the food, because like I was, I would binge on the way to the meeting. I would have food waiting for me in the car for when I got out of the meeting, and, and it would just go on from there. If a person is in that place and you have a day, you have something to share with that person. Yes, you, you're not ready to sponsor and you're not ready, but you have something to share because you're so close to that, that time that you stepped over the line from binging to abstinence. And you have something to share. You are an abstinent 
person because that's what I want to hold on to. I want to hold on to being abstinent. I don't want to hold on to being a relapser. I got so sick and tired of relapsing and starting over again. I, you know, we talk about being sick and tired of being sick and tired. Well, I was sick and tired of starting over. I wanted to be abstinent. And one day of abstinence makes me an abstinent person. And that's what I had to hold on to. And that's what I had to thank God for and keep thanking him for that and for the opportunity to be abstinent another day. Because it ain't easy, and I know it isn't easy. And I don't want to forget. And it's the people who come into these rooms, the new people, how important you are. If you ever realize how important you are, when you come to introduce yourself, when they ask for newcomers to introduce themselves, and it's so hard to press star one, I know how hard it is after all these years and all the years on PhoneBridge, because I go way back to when we had no control over the phone bridge and the background noise was background noise. We either lived with it or we had to change our number. And I know it's hard. It's hard the first time, but you are so important. You're such a vital part of this program. I need you. I need you to remind me how hard it is to start. I don't want to go back there. I want this life. I love this life. Did that answer your question, Jody? Yes, it did. Thank okay. You <laughs> Thank you for asking. Thank you, Jody. Thanks to everybody who posed questions this morning. And, of course, thank you so much, Mary B., for sharing you. your inspirational story this morning with all of us. Yeah. A message of hope and possibility. Thank you very much. We're going to close now from page 164. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously, you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.